All right, conflict resolution five. So we have key texts at the start. There's the Matthew 18 text. I don't have the Matthew 5 text on here anymore, but it's a key one. Um, remember, we have one where if you're offended, you go to your brother, and the other one, um, if you think that your brother's offended, you go to him to seek to resolve it. John 7:51 says, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? The answer is no, our law does not. The law of God does not judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing. Proverbs 18.17 says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and, and examines him. So we're reminded of the process from Matthew 18. Page 2 talks about the step 1 is the one-on-one meeting. We talked about the exceptions. Uh, step 2 on uh, page 3, no, page 4. We have the idea of the, the private meeting, the semi-public meeting. It's a meeting that could be a mediation. It, uh, it could be just a, a conversation with passive witnesses. In the middle, it can be a conversation that involves other people and has sort of active witnesses. The goal is to have witnesses that could bear testimony if the conflict doesn't get resolved in a public court, the church court. It's further to increase pressure to have integrity. And the goal would also be to try to come to a conclusion if everybody could agree on a judgment of how to deal with everything so that it doesn't need to go to step three. And so remember, step one is given to us in uh, Matthew 18, verse 15. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Verse 16, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And step three deals with a court of the church. This is a public meeting. And so uh, verse 17 says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. So um, if the matter is so public that everyone already knows or has a lawful basis to know the situation, then the matter is public and may proceed to step three without the other steps. But you need at least two witnesses to deal with that. So I have the verses as a reminder at the bottom here um, that require two to three witnesses. We went through them last time. Uh, but you can see over and over again this principle of the two or three witnesses being talked about in the Old and New Testament. So I have that through page 5 and 6. What I want to do um, is spend some time today going through um, some of what our standards communicate and some of what the Westminster Assembly pulled together for us about um, church discipline and church courts. I've given you a link there so you can go to it. I decided not to put it all here. Um, If you want to, for this sermon, to be able to have access, there are teal, um, there are teal copies of this book over here. So you can pull it up on your phone. You can pull it up on your phone or you can grab one of these and you can use one of them. There's some on the top left. There's also the bottom right over here. Uh, So this would help you. And you will also have the proof text right there. So Chapter 31, chapter 30, and the form of Presbyterian government are where we'll be looking. So page 6 of the handout. I want to give you a very fast flyover of what the public process looks like. The public process, and then we'll, and we'll look at some of these documents in more detail. The public process looks like this. First, you have two or three witnesses that are willing to say something happened that's being interpreted as sin. Okay? And so this, these two or three witnesses 
are willing to testify, and if what they said is false, then they should be willing to suffer the consequences that they were willing to bring onto somebody else. Okay, so the, the scriptures teach that if you seek to use public courts to bring harm to other people, that the harm you seek to bring with the court unjustly is like a weaponization. Okay? So you're trying to misuse a court to bring harm to somebody else is like trying to take a knife to them or a gun to them. Because what you're doing is you're using public authority to bring something away from a person, to take their rights. So if you wrongly accuse somebody of murder, not just with a, hey, here's the evidence I have, I saw this person go in here, and I think you know, there's nobody else I saw go in, and that person left, and I walked in, and there's a dead body. You know, okay, that's different from saying I saw the person murder the person. Okay? So those are, those are different types of charges. So you wouldn't necessarily, if you, what you're saying was true, you wouldn't necessarily, by saying I saw the guy go in and I saw the guy go out, I didn't see anybody else go in or out at that time, that wouldn't necessarily mean that you need to then be executed for bringing a false murder charge. But if you said, I saw the guy kill him, and you didn't actually, or that was false, right? then you should be executed because you're trying to use the state, you're trying to use a public authority to kill a person. right? So eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. That is the appropriate justice. That's one of the things that helps to avoid frivolous charges. At the same time, there is a duty to bring charges. And so we have this danger of if we don't seek justice, God brings curse on us. And if we seek to bring injustice to the courts, we have curse on us. And there's the authority of the court to bring punishment back on a person. So that obviously you can take it from the more extreme and you can go down. Think about property crimes, right? If you're, if you're saying somebody stole from you, then the appropriate thing, you were trying to get that person to pay you back some multiple of what was stolen, then now you're obligated to pay them a multiple of the costs of, of the thing that you were claiming that they were going to have to pay you back for, right? So there's this idea that you are creating risk on both sides. And so that should apply in church courts. And so... Uh, we have that principle, you need witnesses, and there's the principle of the mutuality of the justice, the reciprocity of the justice. Those are things that are important in the courts of a church. So a church, here's a case, so there's witnesses, and there are specific charges. The charges have to be something that a person has done to violate the law of God or some necessary duty that the law of God requires that the person has refused to do upon rebuke, or they have in some way caused significant harm. So, for example, the Bible teaches that if I dig a hole and I don't do anything to take precautions to prevent people from falling in, like put a fence up or put a covering over it, and I just leave it there and somebody walks in and falls into the hole and gets injured, that is negligent and it causes harms. And I'm responsible for the harms of that person. That's what the Bible teaches. So that would be an example of a negligent behavior that when a harm comes, you're immediately taking it to the third level. You're taking it to a public court if the person refuses to do their duty immediately. Now, on the other side, you might just see a hole uncovered and you say, well, there's no criminal element here. There's no civil harms yet. There's no money owed to anybody. But it's just a sin to leave these negligent harms lying around. So then you might go through a process of Matthew 18 going at step one 
and gradually going up to say that the person needs to remove this neglectful thing, and they would have time to try to uh, fix it. But it would be sin for them to not respond. So those are some of the types of things we're talking about. So we get to step three. We get to the public trial. and You have witnesses. You have specific charges of a way a person has broken the law of God and is unrepentant or a way in which somebody is failing to do a positive duty of the law of God and they're not repentant. So if the church court hears something and it's something that kind of gradually rose, okay, this is a, here's a private sin, it's not criminal, it's not you know, a particularly grievous thing, there's some sort of, it's, just, it's a sin that's a private sin. Um, a good example would be gluttony or um, just anything where there's a sin where somebody's doing something that's perhaps sin that's harming them. It might be harming their witness. It's undermining things. There's, there's things that are, that, are, that are not a criminal behavior. When we deal with that, what we're doing is we're going through Matthew 18, step 1. We're then going to step 2 if they won't repent. We're then going to step 3 if they still won't repent. And there you would take a gradual course where you would say like you go to public rebuke. Public rebuke is the court finds the person guilty after a trial and then says, you're in ongoing sin here. You need to change your behaviors. You need to acknowledge what you have been doing that's wrong. And you need to put this off. So there's an exhortation. There's, there's going to be, here's the, what the scriptures teach. There's going to be an exhortation to do what's right and to put off what's wrong. And then there might be sort of this offer of help to train in righteousness. The person still doesn't reply then over some time, they still haven't repented, you would issue a second public rebuke. The person still hasn't repented, you might then suspend them from the table. Now, they might repent outwardly in word, but then they're not doing anything, they're not cooperating to deal with the sin. You would continue to escalate in the same way. Okay? So, step four, five, six, you would deal with this in terms of public rebuke, the second public rebuke, and then there's suspension from the table. A person still isn't desirous to fix the thing, isn't willing to cooperate, to repent, doesn't follow the discipline that's been prescribed for the rebuke, then there needs to be a move to excommunicate the person. And so the officers would vote, the elders would vote to excommunicate the person, and then there would be a request for the heads of house to examine the evidence to deal with this publicly, and there would be a vote of the heads of house on excommunication. And then there would be, if there's a majority that votes in favor of the excommunication, there would be a pronouncement of excommunication. And at that point, at that point, Matthew 18, verse 7b, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So that is... This idea of you treat them like they're unbelievers, and worse than that, you also treat them like they're a pariah. Okay? The heathen, how do you treat the heathen? The heathen, you treat them like they are not believers. You don't pretend like you can cooperate or work with them to do good works. What you do is you're seeking to see them converted. You're seeking to teach them wisdom, and you're seeking to see them brought to repentance, to believe the Reformed religion, and to um, then start to be able to join in the work. A tax collector is somebody who is an extorter. Okay, so here's what the tax collectors were. Tax collectors, typically, in Rome at this time, were people who would essentially 
find out who had property and where that property was and come up with a justification using whatever tax law they could to say that they can take it from you. And then they got to keep a commission on what they collected. Most of the ways that tax franchises worked was this. The Roman Empire required a payment of a certain flat amount and the tax collector could keep anything he was able to collect above that. So do you see how tax collectors would be dangerous friends? Tax collectors would be dangerous people to invite over to a party. Tax collectors would be dangerous people to hang out with at all. Tax collectors would be people that you would prefer that they not know your friends or your friends' friends or your friends' friends' friends. That is the idea here. This is a person who is a danger, who is a pariah, who is going to use knowledge he has of you to your harm, to take your stuff. Okay, so that's the idea. A person who's excommunicated is not just like an unbeliever. A person that's excommunicated is an unbeliever who is an apostate, who you have to separate from in a more consistent and dramatic way. So that means if you're a member of the same household, you seek to limit your interaction to what your duties are as a member of that household. And you don't seek to give them positive countenance. What you do is you seek to see them brought to repentance. If they're outside of your household, you could still do commerce with them. You can trade with them, but you're not seeking to casually hang out. If you do communicate, it's in order to bring them to repentance. That means you can talk about the theology, you can talk about the stuff in depth, you can show them how their basic assumptions are wrong, but your goal is to have intentional, clear communication about the truth as it is in Jesus and nothing else. So that's the overview. That's the public process. Now, one last thing, go to page 7. In a mature church, there would be a process of appeal. The process of appeal would ordinarily be you have, here's the local church, there's this trial, and the elders are involved in it, and if there's excommunication, the heads of house vote. And then, if you thought that there was an unjust ruling, you would go to the presbytery. The presbytery would be representatives from multiple local churches that would basically be you know, at least two elders or at least two representatives sent from each of those churches to be able to hear the case. And they would hear whether it was dealt with justly. And if it was dealt with unjustly, they might rehear it. And if it was dealt justly, they would reaffirm what had been done. And if they find in their rehearing that the case was unjustly dealt with, and then they also determine it was unjustly uh, found, that the person was found guilty unjustly, and that the, or that the sentence was unjust, they would send a ruling to the local church telling them that they need to repent of the unjust uh, finding or the unjust sentence. And then that local church, if they believe the presbytery was in error, would have a duty to either rebuke and go through a process of fighting that because they think that, person's, that, that court's going contrary to Scripture, or they would have a duty, if they thought that the finding was in accordance with Scripture, they would have a duty to repent and to apply it. Okay, So that's what you deal with. This is how you deal with the different levels there of courts that would exist. So what's the scriptural basis for the system of appeal? We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but what I, I want to emphasize here is these are the parts that are in church courts. And, and here's what's happened broadly. Most churches do not have church courts. And if they have a church court, the church courts, one, make it very, very hard to ever make people responsible for heresy. 
And two, there's a tendency towards favoritism, especially towards people that are well-known or that are prominent. And so it is very dangerous that that can occur. On the other side, there's a danger of mob rule in churches where there's sort of this, this sort of chasing down of people who are unpopular or of a person who has done something uh, that people find particularly grievous or that's misinterpreted and there's not a willingness to hear. And so we have to be very careful to avoid partiality on the one side. And we have to be very careful to avoid the idea of mob rule or some sort of a chaos or prejudgment. We treat the rich and the poor alike, the prominent and the obscure alike. We treat the skilled and the unskilled alike. And what we do is we seek to apply the same rules of justice to everybody. That is the duty that God requires of us. This is true of courts. This is also true of you in your personal conflict resolution. This is true of courts. And this is also true of you in your personal conflict resolution. Now, Exodus 18, verses 13 to 27, what you have in that text is Moses is judging all the people, and there are no other people who are judging issues. And so Moses is overloaded with work, and people are overloaded with waiting for him to hear their case. And Jethro, his father-in-law, comes, and as a prophet of God, a priest of Midian, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, coming in and talking to Moses, he communicates a word from God, which is, here is the court structure that you ought to apply. And Moses accepts it as the regulative principle of government. He accepts it as the just divinum, the divinely established system of justice. And he institutes it in the Old Covenant Church. And here was the system. The system was that there should be one elder per ten households on the lowest court. There should be one elder per fifty households on the next court, the presbytery. There should be one elder per hundred households on what you might call a synod or a classis. It's a presbytery above the regional presbytery. There should be one per thousand in the next court. Now, we see elsewhere that the highest court should have 70 members. Okay, this is another passage of Scripture. And so you have this idea of the, the highest court, whatever that is, is going to have 70. And so this idea that there are layers in between, you repeat the pattern okay, in terms of the, the, the repetition of the, the numbers that you would need to manage it in between. So we're given a pattern, sort of like if you see, like, you know, here's 10, 50, 100, and then the pattern starts over 1,000. Do you see how 1,000 is 10 times 100? So it's like 1 per 10 again. Okay? And so this becomes a pattern that you apply in repetition sequence. Now, that depends on how large the population of the church is, how large the shared jurisdiction is of the highest court. So that's applied. So that's where this thing comes from. We see in the church in Jerusalem in the early parts of Acts and the church in later and middle parts of Acts in Ephesus, for example, in Acts 20, you have huge churches. You have thousands of people in Jerusalem and thousands of people in Ephesus who are in the church. And they are called one church. How are they one church? Because they share 
They share in the same confession. They have the same doctrine. They also share in the same worship. They have the same Lord, and they have the same government. They share a presbytery. They share elders who meet together in these courts. And one of the examples where we see this worked out is when we see the gathering in Acts 15, um, and contrary to my typo, Acts 15 does not have 135 verses. Um, So Acts 15 has a little bit more than 35 verses, but what I meant to say there is Acts 15 verses 1 through 35 are the key verses that deal with a controversy, and there's what's called the Council of Jerusalem. So this is the first, what you can call ecumenical council, or the first general assembly of the church, where there is a gathering of representatives from the churches, and in the gathering of these representatives of the churches, what you have is the process of much discussion where a case is heard out. Now, this had already been dealt with at other levels. You already had local churches that were dealing with this. That turned into a regional presbytery dealing with stuff, and there was still a conflict there, and so they, because it was involving churches throughout the world, they took it to the council at Jerusalem to assemble representatives that would represent the whole church. So this is uh, where we see that in Scripture. So what I want to take you to now is the Westminster Confession. Go to chapter 30. Westminster Confession, chapter 30. So here is the church applying censures. Okay, so chapter 30 is of church censures. It says, The Lord Jesus, as King and Head of His church, has therein, has in the church, appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. Section 2. Okay, so first, section one, there are, there are public courts in the state, there are public courts in the church, and these are two distinct authorities, both appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, section two, to these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. So here's what this is not saying. What this is not saying is that church officers have the power to let people into heaven or send them to hell. That is not what this is saying. What it is saying is that church officers have the power to let people into the church or to kick people out of the church. The kingdom of heaven is the church. We have the presence of the rule of Christ in heaven, here on earth, in the church. And when it accurately judges, we should believe that its judgments are in accordance with the judgment of Christ. And so you would expect, if a person is excommunicated, and they do not publicly repent before they die, your expectation is to say, This person has no credible profession. And this person, therefore, we would expect to not see in heaven. Is it possible for a person to have a deathbed conversion that is private and for them to make it into heaven? 
Yes. Does excommunication guarantee that a person will go to hell? No. And in fact, the, one of the purposes of excommunication is to cause people to have suffering in this life in the hope that they will be spared from suffering in the next. Section 3. Christ's, sorry, church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. So when people are offending, church censures are used to reclaim them and to gain them back. Does it sound like finding the lost sheep? For deterring of others from like offenses. Okay, so you're helping to give an example of here's a problem and you should not follow this example. For purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump. Right, good... Bad company corrupts good morals. You're seeking to avoid that problem. For vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. And for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer His covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. The covenant would be the covenant of grace. The seals thereof would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so it is to avoid having these seals and the covenant they represent be profaned. And that leads to the dishonor of Christ and the wrath of God if that is not a concern. Section 4. Church centers are for the better maintaining of these ends. Okay, So for the better maintaining of these ends, the officers of the church are to proceed by admonition, Suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season and by excommunication from the church according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. Okay, so there's the basic teaching in the Westminster Confession about the use of censures. Now, when we think about councils that are beyond the local church, go to chapter 31. Here's a systematic arrangement of doctrine about councils that are above the local church. And to be clear, Right now, we are in a condition where we do not have a council that we can appeal to that is beyond our local church because we are in an unsettled state. We are seeking to work with others to form a presbytery. We are seeking to work with others to do that. But we are in an unsettled state, and the hope would be that we can find people who would uphold the same standards, and, or we can work with others and come to unity, or that we would ultimately plant other churches and to then have a council that helps to maintain order for those other local churches. And we would want to do that by going, when we reach a certain size, it becomes our duty to send people off to plant other churches. Now, that number ratio we can derive from the Moses numbers, okay, from Exodus 18. When is a local church too big to keep all the people in it? When it is so large that it could send two or three witnesses, not just to the next court, but to the court above that. Okay, so think about this. If the first court has one representative per 10 households, and the second court has one representative per 50 households, and the third court has one representative per 100 households, when you send people to do public business, they should always be sent as two or three witnesses so they can come back and give a report that your court is allowed to receive. Your court's not allowed to receive a report by only one witness. It must be by two or three witnesses. So to send somebody to go do public business, you need to send two or three witnesses. So, if that's the case, 
if your local church has 300 households, it's so big that it could send three representatives, not just to the next level, the presbytery, but to the classis, or you might call it a synod, a court that's above that. It's so big that it could send a full contingent of representatives to the third level. Okay, that's so big that you should be planting another church and pulling people off. So we get to 300 households. We need to go say, we need to go take 100 households and say, go plant a church 15 miles away or 30 miles away or whatever. And that is how we will gradually see a presbytery planted around the city. And when the city is filled in a way that it doesn't make sense to intelligently plant more there, you would find another city that's nearby. So maybe that's Tucson. Or maybe there's a, a town where there's a group of people that want to help to plant one because they've been hearing what we're teaching. Okay, so this is the formation process. This is how you avoid a mega church mentality. This is how you make it so that you are looking at the proportions of the courts that are established and you seek to avoid having a local church become a presbytery-sized body. So let's look now at these other courts. And by the way, in our current condition with the absence of it, what do we do? Okay, what do you do is you simply make do with the best that you've got. So let's say that we, our church government makes a bad decision. Okay? So let's say we go through all the process, somebody's convicted wrongly, or somebody fails to be convicted that should be convicted. But what do you do? Well, first of all, if the failure of order is simply a failure to deal with the evidence properly, that is not a sufficient cause to separate from a body, right? Sometimes people are going to make a wrong call. They're going to misjudge the evidence. And that's a failure. That's an incompetency. That's, that's a failure. But if, the, if there's something where the church is saying, this activity is sin, but we don't think there's enough evidence to convict this person, okay, they could be wrong about that. Or they might be right. The person might have actually committed the sin, but there's insufficient evidence to convict the person. So the failure to convict somebody who ought to be convicted or the failure to convict somebody because there's not enough evidence is not something that you should leave over. If it's clear that lots of cases come where there's sufficient evidence and the church is basically using evidence as an excuse to not exercise discipline, at that point you might say there's a pattern here and we need to separate because this church doesn't actually exercise discipline. Okay, So there's a difference between a failure in a case versus a repeated pattern of failure to apply discipline. But when a church makes a wrong judgment of doctrine, that becomes something where you may have to separate. So if we say, no, we're not going to convict on the sin of theft because theft's not sinning, okay? Then you say, there's a doctrinal error. It's not just an evidentiary thing. This is a doctrinal error. And with doctrinal errors, you say, you've made this judgment. This is sin. You need to repent or I need to leave and protest. That immediately goes to level three. It goes to step three. It goes to the public courts. You go, this is a doctrinal error that a court has made a decision on, and you need to repent of this. And if there is not repentance, then you need to leave and go start another church or find a better church. Okay, does that make sense, that difference? Okay. So synods and councils, when you don't have, when you don't have another place to appeal, you just stop there. Let's say we did have a council that was above the local church. The same problem can happen. So you have the same duty. Ultimately, they make a wrong decision. You may have to split off of that highest court and have a separate denomination. And so that's where that happens. It's the duty of the person who's right. 
It's the person who is teaching what the scriptures say that has a duty to separate. And the person who's wrong has a duty to repent. And this is the way it is. So many times, counsel's error. John Huss was convicted wrongly by a counsel and burned at the stake. Separation from that body was the appropriate response of the Bohemian Christians. They rejected that counsel. It was unlawful. And they fought wars to defend their independence from the Holy Roman Empire and from Rome. That was proper. So you simply have to deal with that sometimes. But we need to go through process and respect the proper courts. So let's read chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. Two, as magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ, of themselves, by virtue of their office, or they, with other fit persons, upon delegation from their churches, may meet together in such assemblies. Okay, so there are three ways that are listed here for how an assembly can be called, a special, a presbytery, or a council. One, there's disorder. The civil magistrate can call a council. Two, there's disorder, and there's not a magistrate who's willing to call it. Then pastors just say, hey, other pastors, we need to get together and form an ad hoc presbytery. When things are in proper order, what normally should happen is there should be officers that are delegated to come from a local church to go to the next court in the way that was laid out by Moses or by Jethro given to Moses. That would be the ideal. That would be the ordered, settled condition. Section 3. It belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience. Okay, so what, is, what does that mean? It belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and conscience. Okay, so ministerially means as a servant, as a minister. This is in contrast to Rome's claim that it's the magister, the master, the teacher. Okay, so we are ministers and not masters. We are servants and not masters. So the ministerial authority of the church is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ is the head and master of the church. And he alone authoritatively determines controversies of faith. And he alone determines controversies about cases of conscience. So the scripture is the alone authority. But the church has a duty as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to read his covenant and to seek to apply explicit statements and necessary inference to make determinations about doctrines and about cases of conscience. And when those determinations are rightly made, when they are in accordance with the mind of God, when they are what Scripture says by explicit statement or necessary inference, then it is as though the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken by His very mouth. It belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God, that's a directory of worship, and government of his church, that would be a form of government, 
to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, that's appeal against government that's been exercised wrongly, and authoritatively to determine the same. Okay, so they have an authority to determine these things. And people have the problem with that word authoritatively because they go, well, I thought they have the only authority was Scripture. Yes, the ultimate authority is Scripture. Does that mean that parents don't have authority over their children, that husbands have no authority over their wives, that magistrates have no authority in the state, that officers have no authority in the church? No, their authority is ministerial. The only magisterial authority is God. But there is ministerial authority, there's servant authority, there's stewardship authority. So the church has servant, ministerial authority to determine these cases. It has a right to hear it and to deal with these conflicts and to make judgments. And those judgments, when they are what the scriptures teach, they add the authority of the church. It's sort of like if a parent rebukes a child, they ought to be basing the rebuke on what scripture says, but there's an authority of the parent. And so there's this authority of the parent added to it. And that's what all ministerial authorities are called to do. Every servant authority is called to lend its voice to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in submission to him. And that is right exercise of authority. Church councils have the authority to receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same. Which decrees and determinations, so the decrees about government, doctrine, cases of conscience, how worship should be done, and the determinations in particular cases, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission. Not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made. So it's just like there's the duty, if a parent brings to you something out of Scripture, there's a duty to obey the Scripture, and there's also a duty to obey the parent. Okay, so there's the, there's the lining up of authorities there. Not only for their agreement with the Word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in His Word. Section 5. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general, so that means like a universal or Catholic or ecumenical council, or particular, so like a local church or presbytery or regional council, all synods or councils since the apostles' time, whether general or particular, may err. They may err. And many have erred, erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. So you judge what I'm reading right here, written by the Westminster Assembly. They're telling you to judge it, just like I tell you to judge my sermons, according to Scripture alone. Five, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. Okay, so 
In other words, they can ask. They don't, the church does not claim to itself the sword or the powers of the magistrate. It petitions the magistrate to do its job when there's a case that's extraordinary. In other words, when the state is not operating in the ordinary way that the law of God requires, we are now in an extraordinary situation. And the state should receive petitions and rebukes from pastors and church councils, prophetically calling them to repentance. Also, magistrates who ask for advice or magistrates who require advice by their blatant display of foolishness require that the church give advice. So we've seen the Westminster Assembly talking about church censures and about councils that are beyond the local church and also what the local church councils would do. So now I want to go to the form of government, which I have a key part for you on this document. So go back to the handout, page 7. Page 7, Westminster Form of Presbyterial Church Government. I would encourage you to read the longer form. It's an excellent document with many excellent things. Proof texts are very helpful. We have two places where we have either clarified or disagreed, whichever you prefer to call it. One is it teaches that there are ruling elders, teaching elders, and uh, or pastors, and doctors. We think that those are one office, one ordination. You don't get ordained to ruling elder, and then you pass some more tests and get ordained to teaching elder, and then pass some more tests and get ordained to doctor. Okay? This is one office, office of elder. There are qualifications for the office of elder. All elders are required to teach. All elders must be qualified in terms of competency to teach. And there is no biblical warrant or basis for the distinction of these as different offices. However, it is totally legitimate for elders to divide labor and have some people focus on more governmental and administrative things, some to focus on more teaching and exhortation, and others to focus on more training of people who are becoming officers. And you might also divide up some of the work of counseling and stuff like that. But they should all be involved to some extent in all of it, even though there might be a majority of some work being done by some particular person. In particular, the teaching in the public assembly ought to always have two or three witnesses. And the way that we are minimalistically, by the skin of our teeth, managing to pretend to do that right now, is by having Deacon Schaefer read the text for you. This ought not to be maintained. What ought to happen as we mature is that there are two or three persons that are teaching. Why? So that it is not a David Reese personality cult. This is not my church. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having multiple people teach on a regular basis is how you avoid it being the pastor's church as opposed to Jesus' church that the pastor is as a steward managing. Every elder is a pastor. Every elder is a doctor. Every elder is a ruler. So that's one place where we have concerns about what the form of government says and how we would want to clarify the second one is it mentions doctors having a role in universities or seminaries. And we want to make it clear that the seminary, where officers are trained, is simply a part of the church, should be able to be performed by local churches, and is not something that requires there's some particular place that is accredited by something other than the church that then you know, is able to receive Pell Grants or whatever. 
This is totally irrelevant to how the church should train its own officers. The training of officers should be done by officers. All right. So, the part that is significant for what we have to talk about. The Westminster form of government, Westminster form of Presbyterian church government, or Presbyterial is what it actually has in their language, but Presbyterian church government. Of church government, and there's several sorts of assemblies for the same, Christ has instituted a government and governors ecclesiastical in the church. To that purpose, the apostles did immediately receive the keys from the hand of Jesus Christ and did use and exercise them in all the churches of the world upon all occasion. And Christ has since continually furnished some in his church with gifts of government and with commission to execute the same when called thereunto. It is lawful and agreeable to the word of God that the church be governed by several sorts of assemblies, which are congregational, that's the local congregation's elders, classical, we call it a presbytery, and synodical, and that would be a presbytery that's above presbyteries or broader than pres- a particular presbytery. So these are the types, and that's what you want to have for a mature order. Okay, So the mature settled order doesn't really exist until you have a local church government that's fully furnished, a regional presbytery, and a presbytery where you could even appeal to deal with problems in that presbytery. Of the power in common of all these assemblies, it is lawful and agreeable to the word of God that the several assemblies before mentioned have power to convent, that means to get together, and to call before them any person wherein their several bounds, within their several bounds, whom the ecclesiastical business which is before them does concern. So in other words, the council has the right to meet and no one can stop them. Magistrates historically have often sought to stop church councils because they are inconvenient. Why? When the church speaks with one voice, it is a powerful witness. And it can topple empires and bring down kings. They are terrified of the unified voice of the church. Unity and consolidation are strength. And so this is an ordinance of God. These councils are an ordinance of God that the church might speak with one voice. Their absence is our weakness. They have the power to assemble. And they have the power to call people who are under their jurisdiction to appear. They have power to hear and to determine such causes and differences as do orderly come before them. It is lawful and agreeable to the word of God that all the said assemblies have some power to dispense church censures. Okay, so each of these points are something that a Congregationalist or a Baptist would disagree with except on the congregational level. Of congregational assemblies, page 8, that is, the meeting of the ruling officers of a particular congregation for the government thereof. So this is something that applies to our local government, even with the absence of these higher courts, or these broader courts. 
the ruling officers of a particular congregation have power authoritatively to call before them any member of the congregation as they shall see just occasion. To inquire into the knowledge and spiritual estate of the several members of the congregation. To admonish and rebuke. And then it gives proof texts about that. Next highlight. Authoritatively, authoritative suspension from the Lord's table of a person not yet cast out of the church is agreeable to the scripture. And then it gives reasons. And it says, the like power and authority, by way of analogy, continues under the New Testament. And in the page 9, it says, the ruling officers of a particular congregation have power authoritatively to suspend from the Lord's table a person not yet cast out of the church. Now, the idea is, there's rebuke, there's suspension from the table, and there's excommunication. Excommunication is plainly mentioned in the confession and was widely agreed upon. Some people thought that suspension from the Lord's table was not a legitimate in-between, and so they spent a lot of time defending that position. Then, the bottom of page 9, when congregations are divided and fixed, they need all mutual help, one from another, both in regard of their intrinsical weaknesses and mutual dependence, as also in regard of enemies from without. So, we need, presbyteries, we need to be united with other local churches to deal with our own weaknesses and because the Lord has made it so that we have different strengths that make it so that we're dependent upon each other to help each other and because it helps us to have greater protection against enemies outside of the church. So that gives you a view of process, and it gives you a, I've tried to focus, I've tried to, I've tried to help you to see what the process is like, how it would begin, what's necessary for it to begin, what the layers would look like, what the power is of a local church government, and to help you to see the different kinds of discipline that can be administered. To go through all the details of how this works would take significantly longer. It is my intention in the next sermon to conclude on conflict resolution this evening by talking about the value of unity and what all of this is about and how we need to behave in order to not consume each other. Because we can destroy each other with conflict resolution. We can ruin each other's lives by always dragging each other through constant dealing with conflict by not overlooking, not charitably interpreting, not being careful to bring the word of God to bear, not being desirous to deal with things in an orderly way. And so let me give you a little preview of that right now. On a basic level, we are all ridiculously incompetent. Just like embarrassing, right? You think about yourself, you look in the mirror, and you can go give yourself all the positive affirmations you want, but as soon as you're finished with the last positive affirmation, you look at yourself and you go, yeah, but not really. You're awesome, except for when you're generally not. And every good thing in you is from the Holy Spirit, and it's fruit of the Spirit. It's not yours, it's not from you, it's from God. So we have to depend upon God, and so here's the thing. You're going to spend the whole rest of your life dealing with all of your problems. And so is everybody else. So what you need to do is you need to go, what is most helpful to this person? And what is most helpful to me? And what is most helpful to the church? 
What's most helpful to my family? There are some times when it would be hateful for you to not rebuke a person. And there are other times when you could lawfully prove that a person is doing something wrong where it would be hateful to spend your time rebuking that. The goal of the glory of God and the good of your neighbor requires you to pick an order of conflict to go through, an order of good works to do. There are an infinite number of good works that we need to do, and we must prioritize them. If we do not prioritize them, we will simply happenstantially just deal with stuff that comes before us. And we are called to redeem the time, to be effective, to be efficient, to be useful, to do what we can to have our witness be powerful, and to do the most useful, most powerful good work. Public sins are examples of things that have to be dealt with. Crimes are examples of things that have to be dealt with. Other stuff, you are picking the order of priority of which of the bag of problems to pick out. And if you just blindly pick, the probability of you picking well is low. But if you instead lay out and you go, I'm going to pursue this, I deal with this. This is obvious. I need to deal with this. I need to chase this down. Important work requires counselors, which is why it's so important that if you are offended, that you be able to communicate with a trusted counselor, with a church officer, spouses with spouse, children with parents, so you can wisely pick the order. So we will spend more time on that. There are comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights about this idea of step three, the public courts of the church. 